it on? Yep, there we go. <laughs> oh, what a beautiful worship and communion message. Thank you. That was, I really appreciate that. Thank you. The last time I spoke, I think it was December, and I was talking about Jesus as our beloved bridegroom. And I returned to first love as his bride. And, you know, seeing Jesus in that light, it encourages us to come to him with vulnerability and intimacy and surrender of our life. And I just love the names that God provides in his word. And so today I want to open up another word, uh, another name that he's known as, which is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Because on one side we do have this humble, protective bridegroom. But I think on the other side of the scale we have this holy, majestic king fighting for righteousness in his kingdom, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so today I want to look at the characteristics of a king, you know, what is it that describes or defines a king and how God um, is a king and then how we fit in as citizens of that kingdom. And so first I want to pray and invite our precious Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, please come. You say in Psalm 81 that when I open my mouth, you will fill it. Lord, I'm going to need you today. I need your word to flow, for your anointing to flow, Lord, and for this message to reach people's hearts. I pray above all things that we walk away with a deeper sense of you as our king, you as the centre of our life. So pray, I pray, Father, that this word just um, comes to life for everyone in this room. In Jesus' name. Amen. And so to start with... Uh, God never wanted us to have earthly kings. When I was reading through 1 Samuel, uh, the nation of Israel, he wanted them to come out from the world. He wanted them to be set apart and he wanted them to look different. But the Israelites demanded, and they says in the scripture, now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. And Samuel gets a bit disgruntled about their decision and he prays to God and, and God replies to him and he makes it quite clear that he's not going to impose his kingship on anyone. He will not impose it on even on his chosen people, and he still won't today. Um, And he tells Samuel, listen, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. My first question was, why would they want a human to lead, knowing they could have the king of the universe? But we're not going to go down that road. I just firstly want to look at what was so appealing about a king. What what are some of the characteristics um, we can pinpoint? Well, the first thing I thought of, well... A king is a king by birthright. Generally, a man or men can't appoint a king or just say that they want to be king. You know, they are born into that position. And even though they are born into the position, there's still this expectation that they're going to lead with wisdom, which I think is why they have all these counsellors around them to be their eyes and their ears. Um, But ultimately, they're the final decision maker and there's no higher authority than a king. The second thing is that kingship means to make decrees and laws and commands and then enact consequences if they're not followed. But, you know, if we were the people, we would expect that that king is going to make laws that are provision, um, that are going to prosper and provide for the people. And the last thing is the king is the military leader. So he's to protect, to guard and prosper the people, and he's also there to expand his kingdom or conquer other land to do that. And so even just in those three things, it wouldn't be hard for us to fit Jesus and the Holy Spirit and the Father into those things because we've got Jesus who's the firstborn from the dead and a king by birthright. We've got God the Father who made laws and commands and consequences and then we've got the Spirit who protects and provides and guards and expands the kingdom. But what I was thinking is what is it exactly that sets our God apart from earthly kings? 
beautiful. It was the absolute sovereignty of our God is that he's Jehovah Elohim. He's the eternal creator. He's immortal. He's always been. And then he's El Elyon. He's the Lord Most High. There's no power, principality, or human that will ever be above our God. And there are three things that divinely set him apart. And the first thing is, is he's omnipotent. So that means he's unlimited in power. You know, we think of Genesis with just a command. The invisible took form into the universe. All these visible worlds took form from his one command. You know, and then we've got Father, Jesus and the Holy Spirit. They have the power to think, to design, to create any life form and shape it into their own intention and will. You know, we look in nature and we see a leaf bug, we see a whale, we see a tomato plant, we see a human. So incredibly intelligent, so different in purpose and function, and yet they're all made by the same hand. And the scripture says that even unbelievers, we are without excuse if we don't believe in God because it's his creation. It's the stars, it's the rainforest, it's the deserts, it's this amazing creation. All that we see is evidence of his divine nature and eternal glory. And Anne had a wonderful sermon last year on God's glory and it made me think of you know, his essence, his very presence, the light of his countenance has brought men throughout the Bible to their knees. We think of John who was the beloved disciple and yet he fell down as though dead in the presence of Jesus. And then we have Paul who was filled with this self-righteous anger and he's off to go and kill Christians and what happens? He stopped in his tracks with the light of heaven surrounding him and he falls down in holy dread and fear and the first question he asks is who are you Lord he said Lord because he recognized the divinity straight away he recognized that this light was not of this earth that it eclipses all forms of darkness and so it got me thinking you know what about the kings that we see or the leaders we see today it seems like they have such power and such authority and They're not probably doing the right thing with this power. And so God brought me straight back to the Old Testament, to Nebuchadnezzar. I love the story of Nebuchadnezzar. You know, what power to humble a king. You know, Nebuchadnezzar had this mighty um, kingdom. And then he has these dreams that fill him with dread and fear. And he calls the wise men. He calls the, um, the diviners, the people doing astrology, all the witchcraft. And he says, I'm not going to tell you this dream. I want you to just tell me this dream and I want you to interpret it if you think you're so powerful and you you have all this knowledge. And the diviners and all the people practicing witchcraft are like, we we can't do that, that's impossible. But not Daniel. Daniel says, give me some time, I'm going to go back to the king of kings, my king, my lord, who I serve. And what does the lord do? He gives Daniel both the dream and the interpretation. And he gives Nebuchadnezzar a warning. He says, if you do not give me glory for your kingdom... I will take it from you and you will eat like the wild ox and eat the grass for seven years. And of course, Nebuchadnezzar turns to his kingdom and he goes, oh, look at my kingdom, look at my glory, look what I've made. And then suddenly for seven years, his mind is totally lost. He loses the whole lot in one one statement. And then after seven years, he finally lifted his eyes and the scripture says, I blessed And I praised the Most High, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom is from generation to generation. He does according to his will in the army of heaven. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? 
We trust that kind of king. That's the kind of king we serve. And then I was reading through Exodus, looking at it from a different direction, looking at Moses and how he led the people out of slavery. And God used his power to summon these terrible plagues. You know, they had flies, lice, hail, blood, rivers, awful things. And the Pharaoh who thought he was mighty, he couldn't protect his people from those things, but God was able to protect his chosen people. And then in the scripture it says that when God summoned the frogs onto the land of Egypt, that the magicians were also able to summon frogs onto the land at the same time that God did. But God's not threatened, you see, because the next scripture says, and then he created lice from the dust. And the scripture says, now the magicians so worked with their enchantments to bring forth this lice, but they could not. You see, God's not threatened by the enemy. And sometimes I think we keep our eyes so much on what the enemy's doing and how he's operating. And look at the power you've given him. But here he's not, God's not threatened by that. He goes, look at my power. And the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. See, this is where man, this is where the the powers and principalities, their power stops. They do not have unlimited power or the power to create life the way that God does. And then after the enemy is annihilated by the Red Sea and it comes crashing down, Moses sings this victory song and he says, your right hand, Lord, has become glorious in power. Your right hand, Lord, has dashed the enemy to pieces. And it's so true, you know, we look at these men and the women in the Bible, uh, the ones who really feared the Lord. They didn't fear man. They said, Lord, look at what you've done. Fear the one to fall in the hands of the living God. Fear that. And fear to be away from him. Fear to be outside of that power. You know, fear the one who has unlimited power. And then look at how our God yields it with such humbleness, with such restraint, with such long-suffering, long-suffering, especially with me, (laughs) patience and mercy in the way that he yields it. And then how, you know, and then it made me think, how does he know how to yield that power perfectly? Because I don't know what I would do with that power. And it made me realize he's omniscient. He's omniscient. So that means he knows everything about everything. You know, and we look through the, the, the book of Proverbs and it demonstrates just a drop of his wisdom. And he revealed it through Solomon, and he would have given Solomon more, but Solomon went to follow false gods. And then we look at God's law. You know, God's law is so different to man's law. We look at our politicians here in Australia. They'll make laws just to be popular. They'll make laws just to fit in with culture. They'll make laws for vested interests. They'll make laws for their best buddies in business. They will change to suit their self-righteousness and and their their own will. But God doesn't do that. He says, I'm not going to change my law to be popular. My commandment is the the standard of perfection and righteousness, and it will not change through any generation, and it will stand the test of time through every generation. You know, that's true knowledge and wisdom. That's the best interest of someone else. And then I thought, goodness me, in this room, everyone prays. I'm sure we pray every day, and he hears every prayer, and then he answers every prayer. It's either going to be yes going to be not yet or it's going to be no I have something better for you it's going to be one of three things and when we pray you know usually it's based on the here and now our desires and wants but his answers will always be based on eternity he'll always do what the best decision is for, for everyone involved he'll always do it based on his great will and who he is he won't he won't ever change 
And there's a couple of chapters that never fail to leave me speechless, and that's Job 38, 39, 40, and 41. It's quite a long one. And it's when Job's friends, they've spoken falsely about God, and then Job starts to question the plan for his life. And God answers him audibly. And I'll just read it out. He says, Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? I will question you, and you will answer me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Would you indeed annul my judgment? Would you condemn me, God, that you may be justified? Have you an arm like God? Can you thunder with a voice like his and then adorn yourself with majesty and splendor? And I mean, this speech, it goes on and on about the knowledge of God's creation, about how he understands how his creation works and what he wants it to do and his power in that. And it's beautiful. I don't think it's condemning of Job. He's just trying to show Job the the grandeur of, of his design and his plan. And then Job just replies, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer you? I know you can do everything, and no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. I have uttered what I did not understand. So if you want to know more about God's supreme knowledge or you want to be put back in your place like Job, have a read of Job 38. It'll do the trick. Um, And then we've got lastly, he's omnipresent. You know, he's always been present and he always will be present. And he's the beginning and the end. He's the Alpha and Omega. He's everywhere. It says that he's in the highest heavens. He's in the depths of Sheol. There's nowhere we can go to flee from his presence. And the spirit, you know, the, 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 the spirit living in each of us, we have the fullness of the resurrection power living in each of us that raised Jesus from the dead. That's amazing. And I think out of all three, this one for me is the hardest to wrap my head around, that he really is truly there. And he says, I'll never leave you and I'll never forsake you, especially when you're feeling on your own and you're feeling isolated. It's really hard to to wrap your head around this. And I think it's because we've got science, we've just got the way the world works and our experience. It can be so limiting. You know, And I think of, I've limited you, God. I've limited your potential of what you want to do in my life. And, you know, even Jesus, he was really shocked at some of the unbelief of the people who were saying that they believed in God. But he knew, he knew that we needed the presence of the Spirit living in each one of us to have the mind of Christ. You know, when we really sit and we be still and we say, Jesus, I need your help. Holy Spirit, help me in this. Then we can walk like him, talk like him, act like him, have that mind of the Spirit to continue believing in something, even when in the natural it looks completely impossible because that's the king we serve. That's the presence. That's what, you know, a leopard can change his spots in this kingdom. One touch with the Almighty, one experience or encounter in the presence of God, and your life can completely change and go the opposite direction. And I'll never forget God when I was um, meditating on this idea of him being present when I didn't feel like he was present. And he just cut through all the rubbish in my head and he said, Elisa, I've called you to walk the narrow path not be (laughs) narrow-minded. Okay, I'm working on that, Lord. (laughs) You know, and his, his presence is real. And I think, again, we can even just limit the ability for us to feel him tangibly in that secret place. That's the place where we should be feeling him, experience him, um, meditating on him, really feeling him. You know, it might be tangible, it might be an audible voice, it might just be that, that, that knowing in your spirit, yep, he wants me to read this, or he wants, but that, that's still the presence of the spirit working. He's there, he wants you to seek him. 
And when we seek him, we start, the, the spiritual opens up. Then we start having these dreams and these visions and we're seeking his face and he will always answer. And that's one thing in my journey that I wish I'd known earlier is that there is always more. There is always more. Never, never be comfortable with just where you are. Always keep seeking, keep knocking, keep knocking because he will answer. And you know, that, even just that, those three things alone, you know, we could talk on end on his lordship. We could pick scriptures out of the Bible and stories out of the Bible that just demonstrate those three things. That he's always present, he's all-knowing, and he's all-powerful. No one deserves honour and praise like our king. That's why we worship him. And the more that I read and the more I spend time with him, he is undeniably powerful. He's undeniably all-knowing and he's really relational. He's re- he knows each one of you and he's going he's gonna to work with you and talk with you differently than he's going to talk with me. And I think that is wonderful. And he should be the only one who has the title of king. So I hope I've, I've done that justice, but I need to move on. Where, where does this actually leave us? How do we fit into this king's kingdom? Well, just a heads up, I will need a part two. I, 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 when I was meditating on this, I was like, wow, this is a really deep thing that you're, you're um, revealing, Lord. So that's a bit of a stretch because I like speaking in a concise, neat package, but I'm going to have to break out of that. So when I talked before about the bridegroom, our position in that is to be the bride. And so now that we're talking about king, I was really looking forward to us being princesses and princes in the kingdom. The spirit said no. And um, the men will be happy. I'm looking at um, the king as the military leader. And I want to introduce us being soldiers in this kingdom. Soldiers in the kingdom. And I don't know about you, but when I was first born again, it became pretty clear over time I had entered a war I didn't realise was there. You know, it's this spiritual war in the invisible realm and and, and suddenly things appeared to me that I didn't realise were there and why I'd gone through such hardship and trouble. Um, But where where does it, in the scripture, where does it refer to us as being soldiers? Well, it was 2 Timothy that got my attention. The scripture says, You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And straight away, those two words jumped out, that good soldier. And I was like, what do you mean, Lord? What do you mean a good soldier? And so I'm not sure if you guys use the Blue Letter Bible app, but it is awesome. It's an app where you can go into that particular word and it will open up the Hebrew and the Greek meaning of that word. Because when you're trying to translate from English or from Greek into English, sometimes the translation gets a bit lost. So this Blue Letter Bible app is what I go to. And the Greek word good is kalos. And in this context, it means beautiful by reason of purity of heart and life. It means honourable, honest, competent, noble, excellent in nature and characteristics, useful and praiseworthy. And I went, oh, that didn't realise that would fit in as being a soldier. But then I realised, yes, God is looking at the characteristics of a person when they're a soldier. And that made sense because if you're a soldier and you are filled with pride, that's going to be really hard to obey your commanding officer. Or if you're someone who's prone to causing contention or starting arguments or you just like to be right, you're going to have a really hard time working on a team on a special mission if you're just going to want it your way. And so it was amazing when I started researching different armies around the world and what they valued in their soldiers. This this idea of being a soldier just opened up. And it was the British Army, out of all of them, that stood out for me. 
Because if you're looking to be a soldier, anyone in the army, um, you have to, you, they usually provide this document that will tell you what they're looking for, um, their values and what you can be expected to, to believe and to, to have as part of your character when you're in that army. And so I want to read a few things out from the British Army. And they said, being a soldier is not easy. You're asked to do things, not asked of other people. You have to be aggressive and strong in battle. Yet behave properly and show self-control all the time. You have to be part of a team. Trust your teammates and they have to be able to trust you. This was interesting. Low standards damage the team. They may cause failure on operations with soldiers getting seriously injured or killed. We have a more demanding approach towards certain types of behaviours and relationships than the rest of society. And then they highlighted some key values and there was a few that stood out. One of them was selfless commitment. So that meant that if you're going into battle and you're in danger, they expect you to put the mission and the team ahead of yourself. If you're in a dangerous situation, the mission and the team come first before your own personal safety. You can't even think of you as others before self. That was interesting. And then they said courage. And straight away I thought, of course, you need courage to be able to go headfirst into a battle, but that's not what they were referring to. They wanted their soldiers to have moral courage, to do the right thing, not look the other way when you know or see something is wrong, even if it is not popular to do it or say it. Gosh, Christians need that. We need that. You know, other key values were discipline, loyalty, and being lawful. So they expected their soldiers to obey the law all the time, no matter where they were in the world. And they said, no matter how angry or provoked you may become, no soldier is ever above the law and you must always keep self-control. And I just, it just blew me away and I thought, wow, Holy Spirit, you spoke this analogy to Paul that many years ago and it's still relevant today. It still makes sense today that we have this responsibility and this honour to serve our king in this way and the mission, the kingdom mission. But the army is not silly. The British Army knew that their people coming in did not have these values, and so they go through this lengthy training process to achieve this. And I believe our king is the same. You know, He's not going to push us to the front lines when we're not mentally and physically prepared. And that's because our king knows where we've come from. He says in the scripture, we were all once slaves to the prince of the power of the air. We were under the rule of a totally different kingdom. In that kingdom, we've learned some really bad habits. We have some mindsets and belief systems that are not godly. And so they weren't righteous. And so our military leader puts us through training too. And Psalm 144, David's Psalm, it confirms this. He says, Praise be to the Lord my rock, who trains my hands for war, my fingers for battle. He's my loving God, my fortress, my stronghold, my deliverer, my shield, in whom I take refuge, who subdues peoples under me. Very similar to your psalm, Wendy, this morning, Psalm 18. And so what I'm seeing in this is that he doesn't take us out of every battle. He just won't. He says he will train us for battle, and in, in return, he will protect us in that battle. And so if we know we're going to have to go into battle, and we're going to need some training... Where do we start? And it was 2 Timothy. I kept reading and Paul says, No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. 
And then another translation, I needed another one to open it up a bit more. It says, for every soldier called to active duty must divorce himself. Strong word there, must divorce himself from the distractions of this world so that we may fully satisfy the one who chose him. And so as part of this army, if we want to be trained, if we want to please him, we start with rejecting and divorcing the world. And the children's Bible says it like this. I thought this was good too. It says, we do not waste our time doing the thing that most people do. I went, oh, that makes sense. Think of all the distractions Satan offers this world. And I'm sure you would be able to add 50 more to this list, but I'll just list a few. We've got endless entertainment, celebrity culture, politics, media, with all the fear, with all the depressing news, with all the lies and manipulation and the fake news. We'll do the Donald Trump fake news. Um, all, the, all the new age movements, you know, they pick little bits of religions and they put it together and it seems hip and cool and all they've done is enter witchcraft and demonology. You know, we've got worldly luxuries, endless worldly luxuries. We've got technology that said they'd save us time and now we can't even be bothered to get up and turn the light off. We go and ask Alexa to do it. You know, we've got this pursuit of a career. We've got this idea, um, ideal of status and power. We've got conspiracy theories. We've got all the added family, just general day-to-day family dramas. But I think the most destructive in the last 20 years is the self movement. You know, it's oh, self-happiness. Oh, put yourself first. Oh, he doesn't make you happy. Marry again. You know, it just, this happiness movement. And not that, you know, sorry if anyone is married again. <laughs> I didn't mean it like that. But, you know, generally, we just, we just want to be happy. It's this self thing. Um, and God really opened this up to me about social media. You know, we have pages dedicated to ourselves. <laughs> and he convicted my heart over that. And now I can't even make a social media page unless it's about Jesus. Because it's all about him. You know? And so if we look at all that, yes, it's so overwhelming. How do we divorce ourselves from all of that when he's throwing so many distractions at us? And it was the Lord. Thank goodness I have the Lord because I didn't have the answer, guys. I did not have the answer because I could give strategies how to you know, try and not do these certain things, but there's deeper spiritual things lying underneath all this. How do you genuinely get to the root of these problems and focus back on God? And, and genuinely divorce yourself from all of that. And he just led me straight back to the first commandment. Love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Thank goodness I got the answer. Because <laughs> Jesus says in John 14, he says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And John repeats this in 1 John 5. He says, In fact, this is love for God to keep his commands. And his commands are not burdensome for everyone born of God overcomes the world. There it was. That's what I was looking for. Everyone born of God and loves God and keeps his commands overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the son of God. And so I looked again, that blue letter Bible out. What does that word overcome mean? And it straight away reminded me of being a soldier. To overcome means to conquer, to carry off the victory. It's the victory of of Christians that hold fast their faith, even unto death, 
against the power of their foes and temptations and persecutions. So this is, this is a, not just a one-time thing, yet we believe in God and we've overcome the world. This kind of victory, is, is, it takes time. It's through every situation we face. It's an ongoing victory. It's an ongoing you know, battling for victory. And so if we love our king, we must be obeying his commandments. He's saying if we place our full trust in and dependency on who Jesus is and who he says he is and that he really did what he said he was coming to do, then we have the surety of the promise. We've overcome the world. We can put our faith in that. And that's the kind of victory we want. We want victory with eternity in mind and in perspective. And that's the kind of love for God that leads to that unwavering faith and leads other people to Christ. And in English, we have this one word for love. You know, we could say, I love donuts like Evelyn. I love, um, I love my spouse. I love my children. We just use this one word for love for everything. But the Greeks don't. They have four different words for love. And this love that he's saying in the first commandment is agape. And it isn't the kind of love that's a feeling or emotion or a desire. It's an action of surrender and commitment to the person of Jesus Christ. Because originally I just thought agape simply meant charity, God's love. But I've recently found a better definition and it says, agape is a sacrificial love that voluntarily suffers inconvenience, discomfort, and even death for the sake of another without expecting anything in return. That definition is now seared in my conscience. I can't unsee it now. I have to live that, you know? And imagine approaching God in our secret place with this kind of love for him. Imagine how God can move in our life if we prayed, you know, God, I want you to train me. I want you to equip me. I want you to correct me. I want you to bring revelation to me. Deliver me from all my fears so that when battles come, I will voluntarily suffer inconvenience, discomfort, and even death for your sake and the sake of the kingdom, and I won't expect anything in return. Oh, imagine what the Holy Spirit can do with that kind of willing, yielded vessel. And I'm not there yet. I'm, I'm still working towards that. And so the next thing I thought was, yes, church, we, we, we must challenge ourselves to be this good soldier of Jesus Christ and have Holy Spirit as our commander. We, we cannot do this battle of life without Holy Spirit. And we're going to need to face those battles head on in a lot of ways, you know. If he's asking us to get up early, that's an inconvenience. Get up early and pray. If he's asking us to go and have that moral courage to speak and say that thing that no one else will say, you're suffering discomfort for the sake of his kingdom. Be, be pleased. He's pleased with that. I remember this one time I was at my last work. Um, my workplace and someone was having this discussion with another Christian about one of the worldly topics we got and they are this lady turned and asked my opinion and I totally shut down and I said I'm just not sure you you know I don't know what God thinks about that and I did know what God thought about that and I totally missed the mark on that and yes I'm forgiven but guys I didn't want to tell her the truth because it would be a discomfort for me. I didn't want her to perceive me differently. It was my own fear. It was my own, it was my own, you know, inability to want to speak the truth. 
And did I make that mistake again? No, I didn't because I felt awful. I was like, I knew, I knew what God says. And it's okay to speak his truth in love. I've learned that it's okay to speak his truth in love. And sometimes the battle will look different again. Sometimes the battle, God's saying is, don't enter the battle. I've got this battle. I will replay. You know, for a lot of us Christians, sometimes it is silencing the tongue. I mean, I'm married, guys. Sometimes I walk into battles and I, you know, I, I think, Jesus, all right, I've got this. I know exactly what to say to Brett. You know, I'm just going to tell him exactly what's on my mind. And then I come back and I go, God, I shouldn't have said that. And he was asking me not to do that. You know, and so this, that was a discomfort to me. I didn't, you know, that was a discomfort to my flesh not to say anything. And so we need Holy Spirit. We need that voice in our head directing us. You know, as soldiers, think about the, the battles they enter and the discomfort they face. But look at the victories that they win. And that's the victory for us. The enemy would love for us to dwell on, to think from, to live from our emotions and our feelings. Jesus wants us to live from his love and his truth. And I just realized how much the first commandment is contrary to the world. It's God before self. It's God before me. And that's not that we put ourselves down or we run ourselves into the ground. It's God, I know you've got me. I know you're going to provide for me. I know that you love me. I know that you, all my needs will be provided. So I can now shift my focus to loving and serving my king. And I just want to end today with the message Bible. It sums up Matthew 16.25. It says, Then Jesus went to work on his disciples. Anyone who intends to come with me has to let me lead. You're not in the driver's seat. I am. Don't run from suffering. Embrace it. Follow me and I'll show you how. Self-help is no help at all. Self-sacrifice is the way, my way to finding yourself, your true self. What kind of deal is it to get everything you want but lose yourself? What could you ever trade your soul for? And it's important to note, if you're with God in this battle, you're reaping abundance. You know, Paul gave this word in the midst of him being beaten, whipped, lashed in prison. People going, how can you do that? I don't want to do that. I don't want to go through that kind of persecution. But he knew if I'm loving God, I'm not on the losing side of this army. I'm not on the losing side. Our king is not earthly. He will lead us and he will guide us through whatever trial will come. And he will use his faithful soldiers for good. So just remember, guys, he's the king of kings. He's always present. He's powerful and he knows everything. And if we are an army who lives by that first commandment, even if we fall to the ground, he will lift us up. He will dust us off. You can ask him for that revelation, for that answer, for the strategies. He's going to train our hands for war. And then hopefully at the end of our long, long battles, by the end of it, he's going to look at us and he's going to say, you've been a good soldier. You've been a good soldier. And so like I said, there's a part two and I'm hoping there's some weapons involved. We need some weapons. But I'll just end on prayer. So Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus. In the name of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Father, there were things over the last couple of years that needed to be shaken. COVID did a great job of that. It's, it's woken us up. It's, it's shown us the necessity of leaning on the rock, on Jesus Christ, becoming stronger and more deeper in our relationship with you. Holy Spirit, thank you for the words you spoke through Paul that are still so relevant today. We are soldiers in your army. We are soldiers. 
And we bow before the feet of the one true king. And Lord, I ask that you would help everyone in this room, everyone in this room to look up instead of around, reveal that deep agape love in our hearts for you. Help us to prepare and to enter the battles to come or even the battles that we're in. Holy Spirit, help us to ask you what we should do. Lean on you for the answer. Lean not on our own understanding, but lean on the wisdom of the Lord, wisdom of you. And help us to trust that you are the one who will provide every answer. In Jesus' name, amen.